0: Talk about faith. You know, faith is something that I've found that we talk about a lot. But I find that it's also easy to misunderstand faith. And so I want us this evening to. First of all, talk about faith and what it looks like, put some flesh and bones on it, and then ultimately get around to some remind, uh, reminders uh, for us in all of our walk of faith. But I want to start by refreshing our memory as to what the Bible says about faith, the whole concept of faith. What is faith? What does the Bible say? But before we do, Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you. It's so good to gather. It's always a blessing to be together with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, you know we need, we need your word. It is as food to us. We need fellowship. It lifts us. It sharpens us. It exhorts us. We need prayer. We need to reestablish that communication with you. And so in all these ways, Lord God, we pray that you would be with us this evening. And Lord, I know that we all wander in here at the end of a midweek day and we have fatigue, we have anxiety, we have problems, there are distractions, there's things that we're looking forward to. But Lord, most of all, we need ministry. We need you to minister to us. And so, Lord, we invite you to just be in this place this evening. We invite you to speak to us. Holy Spirit, teach us your word. Minister to our hearts. And Lord, if there's anything in our hearts that would hinder or inhibit you from doing your work in our heart this evening, we pray that uh, you would take that away. We just pray that you would wash us, cleanse us, make us those vessels that are clean for the master's use, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Reminders, reminders for us as we walk this walk of faith, and we're going to be looking in the books of in the book of Matthew, chapter eleven, through Matthew chapter fourteen, but. We're going to start, first of all, by looking at reminding ourselves as to what faith is. And I'm I'm going to just take us to a few scriptures that we all know, but I find that um, in my own walk, it's good to just remind myself of what faith is. It becomes this kind of obscure, abstract ideal that I know I'm supposed to live by, but the Bible actually makes it quite clear to us what it actually is. And so, Let's read in um, beginning in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And Paul tells us there so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And so here we have, I think, a reminder that we need to be reminded of every day. Our Christian walk is not a typical walk of, our, of sight. It doesn't just involve our mind, our intellect, the physical world. There's, there's something else. And, the, and Paul says it's a walk of faith, not sight. In other words, so that meandering through life, living as everyone else is living, is, is not the way we walk as a Christian. We walk by faith and not by sight. So whatever faith is, it's opposed to The typical way the world or someone who's not believing in God would go through life. We walk by faith, not sight. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, I know that this is one of the most commonly quoted verses in regards to faith. But just take a quick look there. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now, a few weeks ago, we had a a pastor preaching on faith, and he talked about faith and hope, and he talked about how hope is not just a pie-in-the-sky desire that maybe will come true. It's a certain expectation. Remember, he used that definition, a certain expectation. That's the hope that the Bible refers to when it talks about hope. Hope is a certain expectation, but look at what how faith relates to hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So, if hope is the certain expectation, faith is is the object or the reality of that hope. It is the expectation that comes to pass. It's substance. It's, it's real. To me, a lot of times we think of faith as, as just kind of a, a blind stepping out and hoping that something is going to catch us. And, and that's not really what the Bible teaches us about what faith is. Faith is the substance. It's the reality of the certain expectation that we have because of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. Just quickly going through these, but they will, they'll kind of set our minds in the right place when we get to our passage. Hebrews 6, 12. It says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Through faith and patience they inherit the promises of God. You know, Scripture is full of promises. But how do we lay hold of those promises? It's through faith. And certainly we have to have patience. Faith and patience is the way that we inherit the promises which are given to us in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. I'm supposed to be changing these verses, sorry. Hebrews 11:1 Did that one. Hebrews 11:6. But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, that that verse is sobering because it says there's only one way to be in right relationship with God. There's only one way to please God, and that is by faith. And we know that salvation is through faith. And so whatever we do for God that we want to be pleasing to God needs to be a result of of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So those are some verses that kind of maybe put our mind in the right frame, frame or put, our, put ourselves in the right frame of mind as we consider this whole idea of faith. But what does faith look like? Those are kind of descriptions of faith. But I love the fact that the Bible doesn't just give us a description. The Bible gives us the hall of faith, which really puts flesh and bones on what faith in action looks like. And so, we know chapter 11 of Hebrews um, has many examples of faith. Let's look at a few. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts and through it, he being dead still speaks. When I look at Abel, and you look at how the Bible differentiates between Abel and Cain, we come to know what faithful worship looks like. The worship that Abel brought was acceptable. The worship that Cain brought, which was in his flesh, it was what he wanted and not what God's, God wanted, was not acceptable. So Abel gives us an example of what faithful worship looks like. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that, he, so that he did not see death and was not found because he did not, sorry, and was not found because God had taken him. For he was taken, for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. You know, we often wonder, why was Enoch taken away? I think from this verse, it was that Enoch desired to be taken away. Enoch, it says he pleased God. And to me, I, I look at Enoch, and remember, he lived in a day and age when they didn't have the scriptures, but he was a faithful seeker of God. And his life of faith pleased God such that God took him long before his uh, normal life expectancy would have have come to pass. So, Enoch shows us what a faithful seeker of God looks like. Verse 7, Noah. What does Noah show us? By faith, Noah... Being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the life-saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You know that the story of Noah building the ark is an amazing story, but what does, what does Noah's inclusion in the hall of faith cause us to understand? It, it causes us to understand what faithful obedience to a task looks like. Think about Noah. God called him to build an ark. And we know from Scripture that it could have been up to 100 years before between the time that he started the ark to the time that the flood came. We think being obedient to God for a day, a week, a month, a year is difficult. Imagine 100 years of continuing going back. Okay, God, you did say that there's going to be a flood. I don't even know that he knew what a flood looked like. But we see in Noah what faithful obedience to a task looks like. It gives us an example. Is our obedience to God similar to that of Noah's? Abraham, verse 8 teaches us about faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham teaches what faithful following God looks like. Contrary to our modern way of living our life, we want a plan. We want it all mapped out we want contingencies. We want, we want A, B, and C contingency plan in place. And then we decide, okay, we're going to set out and we're going to do this. Notice how different that is than what God called Abraham to. It says he obeyed when he was called to a place where he knew not where he was going. That was hard. But Abraham teaches us what faithful following Of God's leading looks like. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. You know that story of God's promise to give Abraham a child and we know from scripture that it was 25 years between the time of God's promise to the time of God's fulfillment. And at the time of God's promise, Sarah was probably borderline the age where she could have had a child. But by the time 25 years was up, it was long past. But we see that the Bible tells us that she had faith to believe God. And so Sarah gives us an example of what faithful trusting in God to do the impossible looks like. She was 90 years old. And she came to the place where she said, Okay, God, you said I'm going to have a child. I guess I'm going to have a child. Faithful, trusting in God for the impossible. That's what it looks like. Verses 24 through 27, we have Moses. "By By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses is an example of a man who had all he had a future. He had wealth. He had opportunity. He could have lived a life of power, of success, but he forsook it to obey the calling of God upon his life. And I think we've all been at that, that fork in the road where, where we have the opportunity that the world offers us And we have what God is calling us to. And Moses gives us an example of what faithful forsaking of the comforts and pleasures of this world to follow Christ looks like. Moses gives us that example. Verse 30, Joshua. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. It has to be, there are many just plain radical stories in the Bible, but the story of Joshua is just a radical one. And we know from, the, from that story that it was not the strategy that Joshua dreamed up himself. It was absolutely contrary, right? He went to look at it, and God met him on the way and said, this is how you're going to take Jericho. And Joshua had to decide, am I going to obey This angel or this theophany that I met along the way and gave me this fantastic plan or am I going to listen to conventional wisdom and attack the city the way I know how? And Joshua gives us the example of what faithful obedience to the word of God and not the wisdom of men looks like. And we could go on and on. But ultimately, I love reading through Hebrews 11 because they put flesh and bones on this whole concept of faith. They're not just there to say, oh, Joshua was faithful. No, Joshua was faithful, and it helps us to understand what forsaking men's wisdom and obedience to God's word looks like. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 12. Following the great hall of faith, we have the word, therefore. And so we come to understand that the whole chapter 11 is just the witnesses, the witnesses to the truth, the witness to the sure, the veracity of faith. And it says, therefore, since we have or we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and You know, um, the writer of Hebrews, possibly the Apostle Paul, doesn't even name them, but he points to them, and he says, these are the cloud of witnesses, witnesses to the steadfastness, witnesses to the veracity, witnesses to the fact that trusting God will come good, witnesses to the fact that the life of faith is a sure life. They're kind of like the cheer squad, those that have completed the race, they've gone ahead of us, they're standing alongside of the track, and they're cheering us on by their example. You can do it. I had the same thing happen to me. Look what, look what happened to me. You know, I don't think there's a trial that we go through or a task that we are called to or an impossibility that we are facing it does not have a corresponding testimony from Scripture, from the witness of Scripture. Since we have so great a cloud, the Bible says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, I think that we need to be reading Hebrews 11 every day, just to be reminded of the fact that people have gone before us and have faced obstacles, have faced uncertainties, have faced challenges, have faced sicknesses, have faced impossibilities, and living by faith, they passed through. God was good. God was good to accomplish what he said he would accomplish. So, understanding what faith looks like, understanding the examples of faith, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at mostly chapter 14, but we're going to start in chapter 11 and 13, and I'm just calling it timely reminders for us as we walk this walk of faith. Because sometimes as Christians we think, no one's walked the path that I've walked. No one's facing the path that I'm facing. We're going to start in chapter 11. And the first reminder is we need to remember I'm going to read from verses 1 through 6. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Remember what you've seen and heard. I want you to think about John. John the Baptist, the great prophet, the man, the prophet who went ahead of Jesus, making straight the way of the Lord. Certainly prophesied about, um, certainly esteemed by Jesus, certainly a man that had given his life faithfully to doing what God had called him to do. A man who lived in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey. He gave up the comforts of a normal life. But there came a time when Jesus came on the scene, he baptized Jesus, and then he began to fade. And the spotlight went from him to Jesus and then John because of his teaching finds himself in Herod's prison and when John had heard in prison about the works of Jesus he sent two of his disciples John's in prison and he begins to have doubts he begins to wonder Did I do the right thing? Was I preaching about the right man? Did I make a mistake? Why is Jesus not helping me? Wouldn't I be a benefit to him in his teaching? Wouldn't wouldn't it be a good thing if I was still out there preaching? I'm sure he was feeling sorry for himself. God, I gave you my life. Why am I in prison? Why is Jesus out there? And so he sent two of his disciples, so John wasn't by himself, he had a following, and he told them to ask Jesus, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? In other words, what John was saying is several things. He was probably saying, Jesus, did I make a mistake? He was probably saying, Jesus, I'm in prison, can you come help me? He was probably saying, Jesus, what kind of a person are you to, to leave me to suffer while you're while you're out preaching? And I mean, John was only human. I imagine that all of these emotions and thoughts were coming through his mind. And imagine what his disciples were thinking. Jesus, why aren't we going to get John out of prison? Why don't you speak. Why don't you do something to get him out? But here comes the radical part of the story. Not that John doubted. Certainly, we all have those moments of doubt. But look at Jesus's response. Jesus has answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Go and tell John the testimony of what is being done. Go and tell John the testimony of what is being preached. Go and tell John the testimony of people believing in God. John probably was expecting a response, something like, Oh, John, I'm so sorry. I forgot about you over there. A few weeks, I'll, I'll be over there. A few days, or I'll speak the word. Don't worry, John. Your life is going to be okay. John, you've done a great job. Hang in there for, your f- for a few weeks. Everything's going to be okay. I can imagine that's what he was expecting. But it's not what Jesus gave him. Jesus' words were, go and tell John what you've seen And what you've heard. That sounds harsh. For a man who had given his life for serving the Lord to not even get a visit, to not even get a word of compassion, to not even get um, a miracle performed on his behalf. We know the end of the story. John was beheaded. Go and tell John the things have you, that you have seen and heard. Why? Why would Jesus respond in that way? Well, I would venture to say that Jesus was pulling out of John the faith that was latent within himself. He was pulling John to an even greater level of faith. And he was telling John, John, I'm not going to give you something that you can see. I'm not going to give you something you can feel. I'm not going to give you something that will make you feel better. I want you to go back to what you know. And what do you know? You know the scriptures. What else do you know? You know what you saw. I want you to rely upon that. You know, there are times in our life And we have questions and we have doubts and Jesus doesn't seem to be near and he doesn't seem to be answering our call and he doesn't seem to be doing what we want him to do and we have the same question that John had Jesus are you really Jesus or should I be trusting something else should I be trying to take care of myself in this situation And sometimes the Lord is silent. And I believe that in his silence, what is he telling us? He's telling us, Craig, you need to go back to what you know. You need to trust in those things that you've heard in my word. You need to trust in those promises that are in my word. You need to put into practice what you talk about every day. Remember what you've seen and heard. In other words, the Lord is trying to grow us up from being people that need a miracle every day in order to keep our faith in him true to being people that can live on a word and keep going on that word for a long time until we get the next word from him. He's teaching us to be strong, You know, I was thinking we have this new term that I've become familiar with, helicopter parents, right? It's like parents who send their kids off, but the moment they send their kids off, they're immediately hovering over them because they're scared that their kid is going to do something wrong. Well, you can't accuse Jesus of being a helicopter parent to John here. He certainly was leaving John in this situation to grow him in his faith. And sometimes that seems harsh, but it's good for us. Remember the things that we've seen and heard, and and that makes it all the more important, our time in the Word day by day, and, and not only reading the promises, but taking them by faith as our own. And in the midst of the trial, remembering them and saying, God, this is what you said in your Word. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe it. You know, I remember... I remember when my... I was 16 years old. I was going to boarding school. And my dad died in a, in a truck accident. And he was a long ways from anywhere. He was crushed under a truck. And... There was no way to save him. I mean, there was... He had to... Uh, the closest hospital was three or four hours by a Cessna plane. And... I remember questioning God, why would you take a 42 year old man who's given his life to serving you? Why would you take him at such a young age in his life? And I remember it, it didn't rock me out of my faith, but it certainly made me question. This week I got news that a man named John Kudamuch, who was when When I went to Uganda in 2004, he was one of my first students. He was a Sudanese, just a wonderful man. And he came to Kampala to study scripture. He was working with Wycliffe. He was coming to Calvary Chapel Bible College. And his heart was always to go back to Boma, to Pibor, to the Merle land, which is up in South Sudan, very hard to get to, and take the scriptures there and preach there. And, you know, there was one thing about him that, that was just so refreshing because the difference between South Sudan and Uganda is like the difference between Southern California and Uganda. I mean, it's, Uganda is like the first world compared to South Sudan. It, South Sudan is a very, very hard place to live. But he wanted to go. And not only did he talk about going, but he went. And his his years of ministry there were so hard. We took a group of students up there in 2008 in a plane, and we helped him plant Calvary Chapel Boma. He was reaching out to three unreached people groups in that area, and it was a hard life. And he persevered in serving the Lord through wars. And he was chased out of Boma. The churches were burned down. He went to Juba. He was chased out of Juba. Went as a refugee to Uganda, back to Sudan. I mean, it was just a hard life. But he kept going back. And then this past week, we got news that he passed away. Because he got an infection on his thumb that couldn't be treated because there was no hospital. And the only way to get to a hospital was to go by road or helicopter. The roads were so bad, because of the rains, they were impassable. There was no way to get out except to walk an eight-day journey. And by the time he realized that he needed to go, he was too weak. And he passed away. I don't understand that. But I do admire John's faith to persevere in the hard calling. He didn't have to do that. He could have chosen an easier life, but he persevered in ministering the gospel to his people. This morning, I got news that a missionary pastor, his brother, also a missionary, 40 some years of age, was murdered by robbers in his house in Kenya. And I think of I think of Isaac, his brother. And I just think, you know, these guys are so sure in their calling that they pass through situations like this, but it doesn't take them away from what God has called them to do. Remember what you've seen and heard. Remember what you've seen and heard. When I I look at John and what he was going through, Jesus was drawing him to a greater level of faith and and when Jesus appears to be speaking to us silent to us more than likely he's telling us go back to the word what does the word say what do i tell you in the what what am i telling you in scripture remember what you've seen and heard trust in those things amen the second one is that faith Is the key. Um, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And it came to pass, this is verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in the synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and, and John, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are, are they not with us? Where did this man get all these things? Verse 57, so they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in, in his own house. And then verse 58, now he did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. He did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. So think about this. I, I know that you guys who are just in Israel, you've, you, you were in Capernaum. You were in Nazareth. So you can visualize this very place where Jesus was. And he's coming into this city, and I'm sure that Jesus just had this great joy and expectation, I'm going to minister, I'm going to bring life, I'm going to bring joy, I'm going to bring peace. There was so much potential in Jesus coming into this town. In other words, there was desire on Jesus' part to minister to this, to this city. But what does it say? It says they were cynical. They didn't respect him. They doubted him. And what was the result? Jesus didn't do many mighty works. A lack of faith. It wasn't Jesus' anger that caused him to not do What he could have done. It was their lack of faith. The lack of faith on the part of the people of Capernaum prevented God from doing what not only he might have done, but he wanted to do. The blessing that this city missed out on because of their doubt and their lack of faith. How would our lives be changed? we had more faith? What are we preventing God from doing in our life, through our life? Because we either don't have faith or we're not exercising our faith. I think there's going to be a day when we're going to see in hindsight the potential of what God could have done through us if we would have had the faith to allow God to work through us. And that's not to make it a negative thing, but it is to make us sober-minded because to me, verse 58 is a sobering verse. He did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. How many things... Would God have done, would God have loved to do if Craig Lindquist had faith, more faith? Put your own name in there. How are we limiting God from doing what he would love to do? Because we're not bothered to have to step out in faith. I think of really that's the message is given to us in the parable of the talents. You know, there was those three men. One was given five talents, one was given two talents, one was given one talent. And we know that at the end of the story, God didn't judge them based on how many talents they had at the beginning. He, his judgment was based on what he they did with the talents in the time that he gave them to use them. And we all have talents. And... Really, it's the picture of using the talents is stepping out in faith and allowing God to work through us, using who we are, our giftings and abilities and spiritual gifts to bring grace to the world, to the community, to the family that we are in. How are we using our talents? Purposefully putting ourselves in the place where we have to exercise faith. We have a men's group. And we were talking about the difference I was sharing, the difference between living in a prosperous place like like, um, the United States versus living in a poverty-stricken place. And I, I was sharing how, honestly, it's almost harder to live as a Christian here than it is in place like a third world country where there is so much hardship. Because here, you have to decide to step out in faith. There, you're confronted with so many obstacles and situations and hardships that you're at the end of yourself at the very beginning of the day, and you just have to say, Lord, help me. (laughs) And you guys hear a blessing The blessing of this great country can also be a curse. The blessing of having infrastructure and safety nets and health care and social security, all of these things are wonderful things, but they can also be things that prevent us from stepping out in faith. And so we need to, as Americans, as the American church, we need to be those who make a decision to step out in faith to put ourselves in the position, it's not just going to happen all of us to us automatically necessarily. It's going to be a decision on our part. God, I want, to, I want to step out in faith today. The opportunity for faith might not hit me on the road, but I have to go. I might have to go find it. Unbelief, doubt, <coughs> laziness in, in our faith or in our hearts prevents God from doing what he might have done. I don't know if you remember a story. I remember there was a story when I was a kid, and it was about Jonathan Mark. I just had this, uh, I don't know if <laughs> it was one of my favorite stories, and it was always started, Jonathan Mark woke up, and he said, I wonder what I'm going to do today. And he has had this great adventure of what he did. It was going to the beach. And I remember as a kid, it was just such a happy story, because there was just a happy expectation of what little Jonathan Mark was going to do that day. And you know what, you guys? I think we need to wake up each day with that joyful, happy expectation of what God can and will do today if we have faith. Amen? That's a reminder to me, too. Waking up with a joyful expectation of what? God wants to do and can do and will do if we, unlike the Capernaum people, don't have unbelief, if we have faith. So faith is key, number two. Number three, we move over to John chapter 14. And um, we're into the story of the five loaves and the two fish. One of my favorite stories mentioned in all of the Gospels. He's ministering, and it says in verse 13 when Jesus heard of it, heard of John the Baptist being killed, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. And he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. And it was evening, and his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. And Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he... And we know the story. He blessed them and everyone was filled. They ate and they were filled. I love this story. I remember the first time this story really spoke to me was we were doing, I was young in ministry. We were in downtown San Jose. We, were, we had this great idea we're going to minister to the homeless people in the center of the city of San Jose. And so we go down there, and we just have all this romantic notion of what this ministry is going to look like, and we get there, and we start ministering, and the homeless people start coming. And it was more and more and more and more, far more. And I remember the joy that I had at the thought of doing this ministry became um, uh, dread at what am I going to do? How are we going to minister? And the Lord gave me this verse. And I remember reading it thinking, that's exactly how the disciples felt. Jesus was ministering. They were tired. They said, Jesus, send them away. They need to get something to eat. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. He puts it back on the disciples. And they were astounded. They said, we don't have anything. We have five loaves and two fish. In other words, we have nothing. And what did Jesus say? Bring them to me. So the two key things Jesus says. He didn't just say, you guys, why do you lack faith? He didn't just speak the food into existence. He, he took, he asked for their participation and he took what they had. And you guys, that's what God wants. I believe that God could take the gospel to the world in another way. He could use animals. He could write the message in the sky. He could He could do many things. He has that ability. But in a sense, God has... And I don't hope it's not a bad, bad illustration, but he's kind of tied in, his hands behind his back, and he he wants to use us. I'm going to take the gospel through my children. I'm going to meet. I'm going to minister to the world through my children. You give them something to eat. Bring what you have to me. You guys, it's so easy to look at people more talented, more intellectual more blessed financially, uh, more able able or capable than we are, and say, you know what? Those people are far more capable of doing the job than me. I'm, I, I think I'm off the hook in this case. But I don't think any of us are off the hook. I think we all have people in our life that no one else can meet except, or can minister to except us. And... God is saying, You give them something to eat. You minister to them. And you'd say, How? Why? What do I have? And and Jesus would say, Bring what you have to me. And I've talked about this before, but what do we have to bring? We have who we are. We have our personality. We have our giftings. We have our talents. We have the resources. That's what we can bring. And, you know, the same scripture that ministered to me there in in San Jose was the scripture that ministered to me when we began the work in, in Uganda where the very same thing all over again. Huge need. You just feel so overwhelmed to meet it. And I just remember Jesus, the Lord, saying, bring what you have to me. Our participation is what God wants. Not necessarily all our skill and resources and all that. He wants our participation. He wants us to step out in faith and not just run away from the problem or the need. Not just send it away and have someone else deal with it. He wants us to feed the multitude. He wants us to bring what we have to Him. And so as Christians, what do we have? We're in a big room. There's probably 30 people in here. We have many different resources. We have many different talents. We have many different abilities. We're all part of the body of Christ, and each of us has our place within the body of Christ. The little that we have brought to Jesus and blessed by our Savior is going to be enough to feed the multitude. God wants our participation. Number four, we're just continuing through this chapter. Um, The reason these passages all came together was I was reading through Matthew, and as I was reading, these passages just came together for me, and so that's why I'm putting all these together. But um, number four, we see that after that miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, verse 21, now those who had eaten were about 5,000, and look at verse 22 of chapter 14. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Again, there's details in Scripture that are there for a purpose, and those words are there for a purpose, and it says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Jesus knew what was happening. Here, they had just witnessed this great miracle. They were all ecstatic it's like they watched the football game and their team had miraculously won and they were just on a high. <laughs> and then he puts them right back in to what he knew was going to be a storm. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone. But the boat was in the middle of the sea, tossed by waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth night of the watch, fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. Again, we see the characteristics of a loving parent who wants his children to grow up. And Jesus saw, allowed them to experience this great miracle. But now he's putting them right back into a situation where he's, he's in essence, asking them, will you trust me? You saw me do this miracle. Are you going to trust me through this storm? And it says he made them get into the boat. It wasn't just an accident. It was something that Jesus put them through. Jesus sent them into the storm, but he didn't send them... Alone, I love the fact that the scripture says he went by himself to pray, and you can be sure what Jesus was praying for. He was praying for his disciples. He was praying that through this lesson, they would get it, that their faith would grow, that they would pass through this storm trusting in Jesus. Jesus sent them into the storm and then retreated to pray knowing it would be in the storm in which his power would be shown and it would be through the storm that their faith would be grown. Brothers and sisters, we need to expect storms in our Christian life. Storms grow us up. Storms make us stronger. We don't become strong sitting beside a pool drinking Coca-Colas and Dewey. Those are nice little um, moments in our life but if we spent our life doing that if we spent a life living the life of pleasure and ease think of what kind of people would, we would be. It's always the hardships that, that grow us in faith and in character. And like Jesus sent the disciples into the storm, he sends us into storms. And it's not because he doesn't love us. It's actually because he does love us and he wants us to grow up. He wants us to strengthen up. He wants us to, he's preparing us for something greater. And certainly we know that Jesus was preparing his disciples for when he would be leaving and they would be sent out and they would be taking the gospel um, to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus sent them into the storm. And and brothers and sisters, there are many times when Jesus is sending us into a storm. And that's why James is able to say, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because that you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so I don't think... The Bible injunction is that we should put on a happy face and say, oh, I'm so glad that I'm going through this difficulty right now. We don't need to be fake. But we can have the assurance and we can embrace the struggle or the trial, knowing that as we give the trial to the Lord, God is going to work on our character and make us a better man or a better woman as a result of it. Amen? I know all that stuff. We know. We just need to be reminded of it. Um, Lastly, we find an invitation here. And I like this part of the passage. It says in verse 25, or 4, In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus But when he saw that the wind and the wave were boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, O you of little faith. I love these few verses. And look at what it says there. It says in verse 26, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea wasn't in the waves. He was on top of them. And Peter answered him and he said, if it's you, command me to come. And Jesus said, come. And he walked on the water. I couldn't pass over reflecting on these few verses. We know that in this passage, the disciples were in the storm. They were in a boat. Presumably, the safest place to be in a storm is in the boat. Certainly, being in the raging sea is not where you want to be in a storm. You want to be inside the boat. But Jesus invites Peter to step out of the boat, out of the place of security, out of the place of safety, into the place of absolute dependence and trust on the Savior. Jesus is inviting Peter to experience what it is like to walk not in the storm, but on the storm, above the storm, impervious to the effects, riding above the waves as a bird would glide above a canyon. Oh, to have that trust. That we would walk with Jesus, not in our storms, but above our storms, above the foment of our trials, out of the reach and clutches of fear and anxiety and dread. You know, a lot of us, and I put myself in this category, we pass through the storms and we trust Jesus through the storms, but we're in the storm. (laughs) And the storm has its effect on us, and we're seasick. We're throwing up through the process. But we say, I'm trusting Jesus. I think that's commendable. But I think that there's an invitation here. There's a picture here of something else. There's an invitation to another kind of life, a higher walk, a walk above the storm. And that's where Jesus is walking. And that's where I believe he is inviting us to walk with him on the waves above the storm. Yes, Jesus does come down to our level and walks with us through our valleys. He pulls us out of the pit and the mire that we fall into. Even as he pulled Peter out of the water, he was quickly sinking into. But I do believe that he longs for us to know and experience a more exciting walk, a higher walk, above the storms of life. And to me, it's almost as if Jesus is saying in that moment, "Peter, this is life. This is where the excitement is, Not in the storm, where you're getting seasick and you just you just want to go to sleep, you want to lie down, you want to pass out above the storm. Look what Peter does. It, to his credit, Peter steps out. He begins to walk, but he quickly succumbs as he looks around him and he says, Lord, save me. Why at one moment was Peter walking above the storm and the next moment, why was he sinking? That's right. He doubted. He took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to doubt. And Jesus says, oh you of little faith, why do you doubt? That was Jesus's reprimand to Peter. You know, John, back in the beginning of our study, began to doubt and question whether Jesus was the Messiah. Mighty works were not done in Capernaum because of their doubt, because of their unbelief. Peter doubted and began to be engulfed by the waves of the storm. Doubt is the killer of faith, and it blinds us from recognizing Jesus. Doubt prevents God from doing the mighty things that he wants to do. Doubt prevents us from walking with Jesus in the places he's calling us to walk above the storm. But nonetheless, the invitation is there. Jesus invites us to come. And so I would say to you, as we are ending, challenging you, challenging myself, let's step out of our places of of our security. Let's put our trust in Jesus and walk in the exciting places that Jesus is calling us to walk in. Five reminders for us in our walk of faith. We need to remember. Remember what we have seen. Remember what we've heard. Remember the Ebenezer stones that we have put down in our life. Sometimes those are the only things that God leaves us with to draw strength from to carry on. But the reason he's leaving us with those is not because he doesn't care for us. It's because he wants to draw at our faith. He wants us to grow in faith. Number two, faith is key. We're reminded that faith allows God to do mighty works. But lack of faith prevents God from doing what he might have done. And I believe God wants to do so much there's so much ministry. There's so much grace that he wants to pour out. What's preventing him? It's unfaithful believers. Unbelieving believers. Faith is key. Number three, participation is what God wants. I love the story in the New Testament where Jesus asked the, the certain Religious leader, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He was honest with Jesus that he didn't have a lot of faith, but he had a little bit. Isn't that comforting? We don't have to be Spurgeon to be used of God. Jesus is simply saying, give me what you have. Bring me what you have. Number four, expect storms to come. I'm reminded that whenever I'm in a storm, that many times it's Jesus himself who has sent me there, so that in the storm his power will be shown and my faith will be grown. And while I'm in the storm, I know that he's praying for me, and he won't leave me there long. And then lastly, we're invited to a higher walk. And I think it's, it's an invitation to all of us. Come, step out of the boat. It's a walk that Jesus wants us all to experience. The question is, are we willing to step out of our place of security and into that life of faith?